Let's pray together. Uh, God, we praise you because thanks to Jesus, we are free. Lord, free forever and amen, God. He arrested death. He paid the consequence of our sin. And now we have been released from our chains and our prisoners no more. God, I pray that we, God, that we would live in the reality of that. God, that we would know it. Lord, that that truth would sink down into the very depths of our hearts and into the very core of who we are, God, and that we would walk as free people. God, we thank you that you sent your son, that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out. God, that our sin might be washed white as snow, that we might be forgiven forever in your sight, God. We praise you for that above all other things, Lord. And this morning and uh, moment by moment, day by day, God, I pray that we would live with the reality of the cross just ever before our hearts and our minds and our eyes, God. Would your Holy Spirit help us to keep the truth of Jesus, truth of our forgiveness and our freedom ever before us and to live in light of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. If you have a Bible, a hard copy or digital one on a phone, go ahead and open it up. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, where last week we went through verse 10. We're actually going to, we're going to work with 11 to 18 this morning, but we're going to get a little bit of a rolling start on verse 10 again. A lot of the book of Hebrews has been an exercise in trying to make complex things simple. Uh, The book of Hebrews is dense. There's a lot of Old Testament sort of uh, allusion or direct reference. And so trying to simplify that has been the goal. Albert Einstein said that genius is in making the complex simple, not the simple complex. And this morning, we've arrived at a place where there's something simple. And so the goal this morning is just to let it be simple. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 10 is kind of the turning point where the book of Hebrews goes from theological to practical. And then really picking up in verse 19 all the way through the end of the book, uh, the author of Hebrews says, in light of all of these incredible theological truths, here's what I'm encouraging. And he goes into practical sort of commands for how it is we are to live. We're going to start rounding that corner today. We just, I just like lift up a simple truth. See it for how wonderful and beautiful and marvelous that it is. Kind of pack it full of illustration and how it is that, what that means for us, how we can apply it to our life. And then my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would just take these words, press them into our hearts and transform us with the truth of them. And so that's where we're headed this morning. The, the big idea, the main point here is that the perfect sacrifice has perfected those he is perfecting. So verses 10 through 13 give us this comparison contrast between Old Testament sacrifices and Jesus as the fulfillment of those. So he is the perfect sacrifice. We'll start there. And then the rest of it, verses 14 down to verse 18, give us this amazing statement that we have been perfecting, are perfected, and that we are being perfected. So we're just going to work with those two sides. So I'm going to start by reading Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 13. This is what it says. By this will, 
And this will is the will of God to sacrifice the son so that humanity might be forgiven and and, uh, have salvation. So by this will, the will that Jesus came to do obediently and joyfully even, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after, having offer, or after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. The key word in the middle of that is but. But this man. Verses 10 and 11 uh, really, verse 11 gives, here's what this, the case was with these Old Testament sacrifices, but, and then verse 12 is, here's the case with this New Testament sacrifice, this new covenant sacrifice of Jesus. And so, this pretty simple, you just line the two verses up next to each other, and there are four things that the author brings out, four contrasts between the two. So, in an Old Covenant sacrificial system, every priest stands day after day. Many priests, a succession of, of them, a line of priests from the family of Aaron, the Levites, go in and out of the tabernacle or in and out of the temple year after year, day after day, priest after priest after priest. What's verse 12 say? But this man, one priest, one great high priest, that's what uh, the book of Hebrews laid out for us earlier, that there's a difference between the Levitical priests and this great high priest that we have in Jesus. Every priest, many priests, one priest. That's the first contrast. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices. Plural. Verse 12, but this man after offering one sacrifice. So we got many priests versus a great high priest. We have many sacrifices as opposed to one sacrifice. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time. They have to be repeated over and over and over again. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, one time, you've got repeated offerings versus one offering. The way verse 10 says it, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time, one offering. And then the last, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sin. Every priest stands, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Stands daily versus Jesus who is Seated. That idea of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God is one that's popped up multiple times throughout the book of Hebrews. It's going to come back once more again. The reason is because the author wants to highlight that the work is finished. Jesus is done. When we talked about the Old Testament tabernacle and the furniture or the stuff that was inside it, no chairs, no place for the priest to be seated. That's because there was always work to do. Those Old Testament sacrifices were delaying or suspending God's judgment for sin, and there was always more sin, so there were always more sacrifices that needed to be offered. Jesus, on the other hand, on the cross, fully satisfies God's judgment for all sin and therefore can sit. The work is done. 
it's completed. God's wrath and his judgment towards sin, but also his grace and his mercy, ultimately his glory, they've been totally satisfied by the offering of Christ, by the great high priest who gave one sacrifice one time and then could sit down because the work was done. And what we know to be true, both from Hebrews tucked into verse 13 here, also displayed later in the New Testament, is that Jesus will arise. He'll stand up one more time. He'll come back in the fullness of glory and power and put every enemy underneath his feet. He's seated there at the right hand of God until the day he comes to make his enemies his footstool. There's the contrast between those two sacrifices. An understanding of Hebrews is greatly understood by, at the very least, just kind of a cursory knowledge of the book of Leviticus. And after laying out all of the different sacrifices that might need to be made at the tabernacle, there's a statement in Leviticus 10, verse 3. It's the Lord speaking, and he says this, I will demonstrate my holiness to all those who are near me. I will reveal my glory before all the people. That's what's happening in the sacrificial system. He's displaying his holiness. In fact, that's what those sacrifices were doing, continually reminding the Israelite people that God is holy and that the only way for a sinful person to be able to approach him is for something to be done with our sin. Something has to pay for that. In the Old Testament, there's a suspension of God's judgment thanks to the offering of bulls and goats. But what's Hebrews 10.4 say? It's impossible for those to totally forgive sin. Suspend God's judgment, yes. Satisfy it, no. God's holiness is on display there in those sacrifices. You cannot approach me in your sin without something to cover it. God's holy. We are not. There's no other way to come near to God than to recognize that he is holy and see that we are sinful. Salvation at its very root has that as a beginning point. You don't know you need to be saved unless you understand that God is holy and that your sin separates you from him. At the very least, we need that. God says, Hebrews 10.3, I will demonstrate my holiness. He will also reveal his glory. What do we have in the sacrifice of Jesus? We have the supreme display of the fullness of God's glory. We have the fullness of his perfect character set before our eyes. The fullness of his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his love. You pick an attribute of God, then look at the cross. There it is on full display. In all of its glory, shown to us in the giving of the Son, so that we might be forgiven. The Old Testament laid out the means by which humanity's sin, the judgment for their sin could be delayed, suspended. Perform the sacrifices. When you sin, take the right thing. Have the priest do it the right way. All of those kind of human works would delay the judgment of God until the perfect sacrifice came, Jesus, and fulfilled all of those necessary requirements of God's holiness. This is the way Charles Spurgeon says it. All the work of man is but the spinning of a righteousness, which is undone as quickly as it is spun. But Christ has finished the seamless and spotless robe of his, righteous, or of his righteousness, which is to last forever. 
By his one sacrifice, he has ended all the fruitless labor of the ages. And now, as many of us as have believed in him have the benefits of his perfect work and righteous robe. You see God's holiness, recognize your sinfulness, see the glory of God displayed in the giving of Jesus Christ for your sin and the righteous robe of Jesus Christ by his grace is placed upon you. You need not do anything. You receive his grace by faith. You see his holiness, understand your sinfulness, see his glory in the giving of his son for our salvation and receive his grace by faith. And that robe, that seamless, spotless, righteous robe of Jesus Christ is placed upon you. The perfect sacrifice has perfected those he is perfecting. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Start reading with me in verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. As I mentioned at the start, verse 14 is the linchpin of this, uh, this whole section. So we're, we're gonna camp out here the rest of our time in the word together. It's not complicated. It's hugely important. Note the tenses here in verse 14. If you've got a new international version, a new living translation, or an ESV, an, an English standard version, look down at the way your translation renders verse 14. I have a CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Mine sounds all past tense. By one offering, he has perfected, past tense, forever those who are sanctified, as though that's happened. If you're looking at an NIV, an NLT, or an ESV, yours says some form or fashion of, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, are being perfected. The present tense there on the end is the correct rendering of that verse. Are sanctified, are, that verb, is present tense, but then we see the word sanctified, ed, makes, it, makes us think it's past. The easier way to render that in English is that something has happened that has perfected us forever and is sanctifying or is perfecting us now. Let's work with that. Perfected, past tense, something that has happened. It's definite and done. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, according to and in full obedience to the will of God, has made you perfect. It's done, accomplished on your behalf. When you placed your faith in Jesus, by the grace of God, you were given the seamless, spotless robe of his righteousness, and it is never coming off. That's one of the great messages of the book of Hebrews. You receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. You are forgiven. And that is never going to be taken away from you. It can't be. Kent Hughes says it this way. Our perfection, our perfection is accomplished. And in the timelessness of eternity, it will go on and on. You have been made perfect. Let me give you two important implications of that. Number one. You are not merely an improved version of yourself. Jesus didn't die to make you a better version of the sinful human being that you are. 
It's not that Jesus went to the cross and you got a system upgrade from version 1.0 to version 1.1 or something like that. What's the text say? You've been made what? Perfect. Not improved. You've been made perfect. Let me tell you why that matters. When we allow ourselves to think that the death of Jesus on the cross has improved us in some manner, we lose our humility. If I'm an improved version of myself, it must also mean that I'm a better version of humanity than anyone who's not been saved. That makes me arrogant, prideful, as if when I placed my faith in Jesus, what happened is that I got upgraded so that I think better, act better, live better than anyone else who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That makes us end up looking judgmental and hypocritical. The world can smell that. And it doesn't smell like the aroma of Christ. It smells like the aroma of our sin. It smells like self-righteousness. It smells judgmental, hypocritical. We haven't been improved. We've been perfected. And here's the key. We couldn't do it ourselves. As Christians... We're openly recognizing the fact that I'm fundamentally broken and could do nothing to save myself. I had to be perfected by something else. In fact, if scripture had laid out for me a way by which I could have followed the rules and made myself perfect, a Christian understands that my sin is such that I wouldn't even have chosen to follow it. I would have gone elsewhere. I would have run after other things. And if I had chosen to try to follow it, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I would have come up short. We recognize that we have been perfected and it is entirely a gift of grace. Nothing should be more humility-inducing than the reality that all of our brokenness and sinfulness has been perfected on our behalf. That causes us not to look highly at ourselves, but to look at God and think highly of him. I didn't do this to me. He did it. All the glory's his. I'm not better than someone else. We as Christians aren't better than the people around us. We have been perfected by the only one who could have made it the case. That should put us in a position of humility. Number two, you are forgiven. I don't think I can press this firmly enough. You're forgiven. You have been perfected. How does that happen? Look, look down at verse 17. In the middle of this section, starting in verse 15 and then working through verse 17, there's a quotation from something in Jeremiah 31. It's a condensed version of the quotation from Jeremiah 31 that was in Hebrews chapter eight. The Holy Spirit testifies to us, followers of Jesus, saying words of God, I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. He will never again remember them. How does it tell us that we've been perfected? God will not remember our sins and our lawless deeds. How does that work? We see the phrase never again remember, and because we're human and we're working with finite language, we substitute in the word forget. That's what seems to make sense. God says, I will forget your sins, and your lawless acts. Here's the problem with using finite human language to to try to describe an infinite God. It, It comes up short. It's not possible for God to forget. 
He can't. It's not within his character. He's all-knowing. What it means that God has done is that he has chosen not to recall the reality of our sin. That's how you've been perfected. The seamless, spotless robe of the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon you and now God chooses not to recall your sin, but instead to recall the righteousness of Jesus. That's the grace of God. That's what he's done on your behalf in Christ. He chooses to recall the righteousness of Christ rather than to recall the reality of your sin. He's never going to recall the need for punishment for your sin because he's already called that into account. He did it on the cross. Were we to bring those, or were he to bring those sins back up and force them to be reckoned with again, that would be a kind of double jeopardy sort of situation. Last week I said that when you read the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, the whole thing is a, is a pretty bloody affair. There are constant reminders, both for us as readers and for the Israelite people, of the reality of sin, the reality of God's holiness, the just consequences for our sin. Look, the same is true for us today. The cross was a bloody affair. The sacrifice of Jesus is the fullness of God's wrath and anger towards sin poured out entirely upon his son. God's no angrier in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament, but he's also no more loving in the New Testament than he was in the Old Testament. All of the judgment for sin that the Israelites saw play out day after day at the altar of the tabernacle finds its fulfillment in one act on the cross. And now God will not call to mind your sin. He will choose not to. Put yourself on a covered wagon caravan, you know, heading west with a group of pioneers. You're out in the middle of uh, the grasslands on the prairie and out on the horizon, you can see that there is a massive grass fire coming toward you. You can see the smoke. It's an incredibly dangerous situation for a caravan of covered wagons. They've got two options. You either retreat far enough to get back to the nearest river that was wide enough that the fire can't jump it, and then you recross all your stuff over the river. That takes a lot of time. Your other option would be to turn north or south and try to get far enough either below or above the fire that you can pass down around it and allow it to pass you by unharmed. What they did instead, because both of those were difficult uh, options is that they would actually set a fire where they were, burn out an entire area, and then move their entire wagon caravan and all of their supplies into the burnt out space. Why? Because when the fire arrived, there'd be no fuel for it. It would either divert and go somewhere else or it would eventually die out, but there was no fuel for the fire to feed on. All those Old Testament sacrifices delaying God's judgment, delaying God's judgment, delaying God's judgment, suspending his wrath. And then comes Jesus, the perfect sacrifice who absorbs all of God's wrath for all of the sin of all of those who would place their faith in him. And now you stand in the burnt out area, totally safe, hidden in Christ, underneath his righteous robe. Judgment will not fall on you. It can't. You are forgiven. That's the truth of what it means to have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and now God's grace covers you. There's a poem by a man named Henry Livingston called Hiding Place and in the middle of it, there's a, 
little two verse uh, section. And he says, on him, almighty vengeance fell that must have sunk the world to hell. He bore it for the chosen race and thus became their hiding place. Thanks to Jesus, judgment has been satisfied. We have been forgiven and that is cause for rejoicing. Isaiah 61.10 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. I rejoice greatly. I exult in my God. The Holy Spirit testifies to us that we've been made perfect, forgiven, and we can rejoice in that truth. Over the summer, uh, Melody's and my dog got out. We have like a wooden fence in our backyard. I'm not sure if the fence was left open or if she just kind of climbed out over it, which she has the ability to do, but we left her out there too long. And by the time I went back into the backyard to let her in, there was no dog back there. So mild panic starts in. Um, It was really hot. She's a husky, a lot of fur, not a great situation for her. Um, You know, we're trying to figure out where she is. Well, we find out via like social media chain that she was like half a mile away stuck in a creek behind somebody's house when they heard her whining. And so they went out and they got her up out of the creek and they gave her some water and whatnot and they called animal control and animal control was gonna bring her back to our house. And so Melody and I go out into the driveway and we're just kind of sitting there waiting for animal control to arrive and I'm rehearsing like the way I'm going to both apologize to animal control and convince them that I'm not an irresponsible pet owner. And so... I'm also thinking, okay, this is, I've seen an animal control vehicle before. Uh, It's like a truck that's got cages or kennels on the back. And so she's going to arrive here in the little prison in the back, you know, like here's this wild animal, please take her off our hands. So I'm waiting for that moment to happen when up over the little hill on our street comes the animal control vehicle with the lights on, like sirens. I'm thinking, oh, this is awful. But as it gets closer, I notice that our goober of a dog is riding shotgun. (laughs) Head out the window, the animal control officer had put it down, tongue hanging out of her mouth, just slobbering all over the rest of the truck. She thinks it's a parade, right? And she's like the guest of honor of this thing. And so the car, the animal control truck stops right at the bottom of our driveway. And I walk down and I start launching into my rehearsed thing about how I'm not a terrible pet owner. And the animal control worker opens up the door and there's our dog covered in mud. It's got mud all over the front of this truck. She hops down like she is loving life. She got to spend two hours out and about on the town and then got a parade and got to ride in a car. Like, this is the best moment for her. And the animal control officer just kind of says, you know, you can take her. So we bring her in. We've got to get her all cleaned up. You know, she doesn't know the difference. Right, so often in our guilt and in our shame, whether it's a past sin or a sin that we're currently struggling with, we realize, like, I'm stuck in the mud here. I'm all dirty. I deserve to be put back in the prison but you've been perfected. Riding shotgun, cleaned up. You got all the mud, all the nastiness. And it's like Jesus said, climb on up in here. I'll put the window down, stick your head out and enjoy the ride. You've been forgiven. 
And we think to ourselves oftentimes, whether it's a sin struggle that we're going through in the moment or one that happened in the past that had particularly large consequences or brought us, you know, a particular kind of embarrassment or feelings of shame, we think to ourselves, I could never forgive myself. Praise the Lord. In your moment of judgment, it won't be about you forgiving you. It'll be about the fact that Jesus died so that you could be made perfect. You are forgiven entirely and completely. We need to accept that. Let that sink deep down into the reality of who we are. The perfect sacrifice has made you perfect, forgiven, clean. It's an accomplished fact. The perfect sacrifice has perfected those he is perfecting. That's the last part of verse 14. Present tense, it is happening. Not something that's already done in you. The word here is actually the word for like setting apart. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected those who are being set apart, who are being sanctified. All the Old Testament imagery here, the the stuff used to set up the tabernacle had to be purified, set apart. The implements inside had to be purified, set apart. The priests that went in had to be purified, set apart. The very clothes that they wore, right? In order to go into the presence of the Lord, that's how it had to be. What's the implication here? We have been made perfect. If we've received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, then we are perfect, we are forgiven, and we're being set apart. That means that you, sister and brother in Christ, can now walk confidently into the presence of the Lord like one of those priests would have. In fact, the author of Hebrews has already said that. We have confidence to approach the throne of grace with boldness. And Why do we have that confidence? Because we've been perfected by Jesus and because Jesus is perfecting us. Yesterday, my wife and I went to a basketball game of a group of four-year-olds from our church. If you're looking for something to do on a Saturday morning, it's one of the most entertaining experiences you can have. Now, after that game, if I had, you know, gotten down, you know, eye level with one of those four-year-olds and just said, are you a basketball player? What would they have said? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a basketball. Did you see me out there? I was doing basketball things. I dribbled twice, ran 25 steps, dribbled twice more tried to take a shot, right? You are a basketball player, but they're also becoming a basketball player. Learning all the things necessary in order to play basketball. How to dribble, how to pass, how to play defense, how to get a rebound, how to inbound the ball, where out of bounds is. They're learning all of that. Not coincidentally, if you sat down with LeBron James or with Anthony Davis and you said, are you a basketball player? they would say, of course I'm a basketball player. I'm a professional basketball player. Are you also becoming a basketball player? They would still say yes. They've been playing basketball since they were four. They're the best players in the world. They're still becoming basketball players. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, received God's grace, you were clothed in his righteousness. You became a Christian. Literally, little Christ. That's what being a Christian means. Every day after that, you are becoming a Christian, a little Christ. You are being perfected. You were made perfect, and now you are being made perfect. 
two implications of that, and this is where we'll close. Number one, look at verse 14 again. We can know we are saved if we're being sanctified. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The big context of Hebrews is that the author wants the readers of this letter to know, they can know for sure whether or not they're saved. And he tucks a reminder into verse 14. How's, how can you know that you are saved if you're being sanctified? He has perfected those he is sanctifying. You can know for sure that you have been saved when you are experiencing the pain and the difficulty of sanctification. It's hard, often uncomfortable. We're forced to confront the reality of our sin. There are moments where we've got to make painful confessions or work through difficult processes of repentance, trying to detach our heart from things that ultimately are not for our good that God has called sin and trying to learn how to love the things of God. It is a difficult process, but one we can rejoice in because it's how we know that we've been saved. It's how we know that one day we will be glorified. We can know we're saved if we're being sanctified. Melody and I don't have children yet, but a number of the people in our small group do have kids. And every time there's uh, one of the couples has a new child, there's also the moment, there are little ways after where they recount the story of the traumatic first trip to the doctor that involved shots. And they walked in with a baby who they could not reason with and say, this is ultimately for your good. You know, I'm doing this because I love you right? There was just confusion and crying and tears and a baby that makes mom and dad feel like a monster. But it's in love. I'm doing this because I love you, because it's ultimately for your good. In all of our sanctification, when we dig in our heels, when we struggle with the process, when we don't want to take part, God from an eternal perspective is looking at us saying, I'm doing this because you're my child and I love you and I know what's best for you, and I know what it is that you need, and I get that it's hard, and I get that it's difficult, but you can trust me. I love you enough to perfect those that I have perfected. And one day, maybe later on in life, or maybe not until uh, eternity, we'll look at the Lord and say, thank you. Thank you for doing that. God loves his people, those he has perfected. He loves us enough to continually perfect us. Implication number two, the Holy Spirit prompts and empowers our sanctification. Look again at the quote from Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. It's one task of the Holy Spirit to continually remind us that we have been perfected. It's another task of the Holy Spirit to continually help us be perfected. That's what he does. He writes the law on our hearts. He prompts our sanctification. He screams into our hearts the truth of God's good and gracious and loving commands. He also empowers the obedience to them. It's the Holy Spirit that causes us to adopt a heart posture like Jesus's that says, I have come to do your will, O God. It's the Holy Spirit that enables us to walk forward in obedience. He testifies to those things. If you were here last weekend, think back to the card that you wrote out. 
It was the Holy Spirit that nudged you toward whatever obedience looked like for you. The Holy Spirit that brought to light something in your own life where you could take steps forward in obedience. He prompts that within us. It was the Holy Spirit that reminded you of that thing on Monday or on Tuesday or whenever you saw the card again. And it is the Holy Spirit that moves you forward in obedience. Writes the laws on our hearts. Helps us to crave the things of God puts those into our minds, calls them forward for us. It's a gracious act of the Lord when he confronts our sin and forces us to see it and then propels us through the process of sanctification. Starting in Hebrews 10, 19, the book is going to get hugely practical. It begins with a big therefore in light of everything before this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, because we have been perfected, and then he's gonna launch into a list of things that we should do in response. Everything that the rest of the book of Hebrews commands, the Holy Spirit writes on our hearts and on our minds and enables us to obey. But let's not miss this as we make the turn. What's commanded flows from what Jesus has done. Nine and a half chapters of theological reminder before three and a half chapters of command. Our obedience works the same way. We are to remind ourselves of the cross where our perfection was achieved for us. The Holy Spirit testifies to that within each and every person who has been saved by God's grace, grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Then we partner with the Holy Spirit in walking forward in obedience. The cross comes first. Our obedience flows from it. You could look at any New Testament epistle. That's how they function. The truth of the cross is the only means by which we are saved. It's also the only means by which we move forward in obedience to the Lord. The cross first, then obedience. Two encouragements. Number one, if you've not ever reckoned yourself with the reality of God's holiness and your sinfulness and your need for a savior, you can do that today. You can see him in all of his holiness, understand your sinfulness and receive the righteousness of Christ by the grace of God through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. You can do that today. You can be made perfect, be forgiven, released from your chains, a prisoner no more. That can happen for you today. If you're someone who's been walking with Jesus, whether it's been for 10 days, 10 years or for decades worth of time. We often need to get on our knees before the Lord and pray that the Holy Spirit would testify to us about the goodness of God's law and its loving graciousness to us. To humbly come before the Lord and ask that the Holy Spirit do its job. Humble us, give us a sense of humility to walk in obedience to what the Holy Spirit empowers and obedience to his law. That might be where you need to start today. I want to pray and then we'll go. God, thanks for your word. God, for reminding us of these great truths of your son. Lord, thank you for the cross where we see the fullness of who you are in all of your holiness and in all of your justice and in all of your righteousness, but also we see you in all of your love and all of your grace and in all of your mercy, God, and we can run to the cross and be covered with the righteousness of Jesus. God, thank you that from that point forward, you choose not to recall the reality of our sin and instead choose to look upon the righteousness of Christ that covers us. Thank you that we can be forgiven, that we have been forgiven. God, thank you that your Holy Spirit 
works inside of us to give us a craving for your law, a craving for obedience, a desire to walk with you, Lord. And we'll never be perfect in that on this side of heaven, God, but thank you that the continued process of sanctification reminds us that we have been saved. God, I pray that as a church, for those who have received your grace by faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us to become what we already are. God, we have been made perfect by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Would your spirit empower and enable us to continually be made perfect into the image of Jesus until the day we are fully glorified in your presence, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Have a great week.